viruses have nice tricks. Uh, and of course, you, you, you can hear that I'm slightly fascinated. I'm partially on the side of the virus. <laughs> but they have nice tricks to, um, to delay or evade these mechanisms. Welcome to the Leiden Bioscience Park podcast, where we talk about what the organizations in Leiden do to beat COVID. From vaccines to food, we discuss all the different initiatives right here in this podcast. My name is Joop van der Neerenbeemt and with me is Hans Stanke, now retired but a renowned scientist in the field of molecular cell biology at the Leiden University Medical Center. Together, we will interview scientists, entrepreneurs and innovators. We won't stop asking questions until we found out what COVID is exactly, what it does to our bodies, and what our guests are doing to battle this pandemic. Today, we take a look at the future. Is there another pandemic on the horizon? And if so, can we prevent it from happening? With us is Erik Snyder. Erik is professor of molecular virology at the Leiden University Medical Center and has been studying coronaviruses and their relatives for over 30 years. He's particularly fascinated by their replication machinery, evolution and interactions with host cell and immune system. And of course, his team also provides theoretical and practical training to young scientists at many levels with an interest in virology. Eric, very welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Eric, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question before we get into the nitty gritty of your work. I understand that the uh, LUMC launched a crowdfunding initiative for Corona. That's correct, yeah. Early on in the uh, first weeks of the outbreak, um, we realized that it was high time to expand our lab facilities, to have more, as we call it, BSL-3 lab space, which is needed to work safely with this kind of virus. And uh, to achieve that, uh, of course, you can write a lot of grant applications and then wait for many months for them to, something to happen or not. But instead, our, our dean in particular, uh, Pankas Hogendorn, together with the Leiden University Fund, uh, started a crowdfunding action, uh, uh, initiative um, by the end of March, I think, which was, uh, yeah, for me, really a surprise. I, I, I'm old school. I, I'm not familiar with these kind of initiatives, but by now the, the action has raised more than a million euros for uh, uh, COVID-19-related research at LUMC. Wow, that's phenomenal. And and are these um, private funds that you're receiving mostly? It's or a, a complete mix. On, on the website, you can see uh, over 6,300 donors who have left messages of encouragement and sometimes very personal stories. So these are small donors, but also several uh, larger donors, including uh, the Leiden University Fund itself has donated a substantial amount of money to uh, get us started. And uh, by now, this new lab is, uh, is up and running and uh, we expanded our uh, working space basically from two to five uh, spots. So this is two and a half times more than we uh, we had available when this all started. So the money is uh, well spent. It's very well spent. Let, let's go to what you're actually doing. And, and if I may introduce it, um, I like to distinguish, in fact, um, three phases in, in the entire battle against the corona. We all know the uh, the, the attempts to develop the, the, the vaccines. Sure. We're very close to that. Mm -hmm. The second is uh, the inhibitors of virus replication, and uh, you're one of the uh, people who focus on this. Yep. And then the third 
is uh, in fact the 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 medication uh, recently uh, the tocilizumab was announced uh, dexamethasone is one mm -hmm. that interacts with the very heavy immune system of the patient and in that way you try to make the disease bearable for the patient yeah. can can you, can you position your own research within this scope of uh, possibilities yeah we we are we are well very much a, a preclinical lab i would say so we we start from the replication uh, of the virus itself. We want to understand how it works and how you can, using that knowledge, how you can block virus replication. So this is where the inhibitor works come from. And then I'm talking about true virus inhibitors because the uh, compounds you are mentioning are basically uh, fighting the, the consequences of infection at the level of, for example, the immune system. There are examples where uh, uh, blood clotting was uh, uh, battled basically using medication in COVID-19 patients. Um, but of course, yeah, you can prevent that if you can stop the virus in its earliest phase of, uh, of infection. If you can really stop these first cells of replicating the virus and spreading it through the body, um, then you have uh, already won the battle before it actually has started. And, and, and so far, the success has been very limited. Yeah, eh? Because yeah. also this week, the WHO announced that Remdesivir, who was given, yeah. actually doesn't do a good job, no, right? No, no we, we suspected this already for quite a while. It, it works quite well in, in cell culture. It, in cell culture is one of the best compounds to inhibit replication, but that's a completely different story than having it uh, with the same activity level in, in a human body. And of course it is, it was sort of a byproduct of, of, of the hunt forced for hepatitis C virus inhibitors and then for Ebola virus inhibitors in both cases, it didn't make it. It was, it, it lost uh, against other compounds that were better. And yeah, uh, it was screened against many other viruses and did something against coronaviruses, which was the basis for uh, a lot of noise. I, I, I would say now, um, I think the study that was, uh, and the advice that came out from WHO uh, this week was pretty clear. I think they, they looked at 7,000 people who got treated with it and uh, concluded that there's actually no benefit uh, in whichever stage of infection that it is used. And what is your approach to make this better? Yeah, that means you really have to tailor drugs to fit the coronavirus. And, and uh, of course, we, we could have done so after the first SARS outbreak of 2003. This new virus is 80% identical at the genomic level compared to uh, SARS-1, as we now call it. Um, but yeah, that requires, of course, a, a lengthy investment in, uh, in, in basic research first and then drug development targeting, for example, the uh, replicative enzymes of this virus. So all viruses need their and somatic functions to replicate their genome in the infected cell. Um, best known example, of course, is HIV, a virus for which we never were able to make a vaccine, which is now controlled by a combination of antiviral drugs that target these kind of enzymatic activities. And you can achieve that for coronaviruses as well, I'm, I'm confident, if you invest and, and have the, uh, uh, yeah, the, make the effort to, to, to continue until you got it. And probably it's easier than for HIV because there, Treatment has to be lifelong. Uh, side effects are a much bigger issue than here, where probably a pretty short, short treatment of three, four weeks yeah. might be enough to uh, com completely control the uh, But you, you, you mentioned 2003, so it's fair to conclude that we have been sleepy since. Yeah, well, this is how, how things work, right? So, uh, of course, at first there was a lot of money for SARS-1 as well, although nowhere near what we're seeing now invested in SARS-2. 
but then after a few years, uh, there are other viruses that come up, uh, other outbreaks. Uh, you, if you look back at the period between the two SARSs, we've had bird flu, we've had Ebola, we've had Zika virus, Chikungunya virus, and each of those, uh, I would say, just justifies attention as well. And uh, that, that's then, yeah, the money moves away to these novel problems, and in particular, the, the midterm investments are not made because you would you would basically have to have a, a virus virus uh, virology wide program, I, I would say, to. Um, uh, yeah, ba basically uh, characterize all potentially pandemic viruses. There, there are at least 10 groups that can do something like the coronavirus is doing now. We, that's what we assess. And for each of those, you would have to have the best starting points to combat them, which means drugs on the shelf that you can use right away when something would emerge, and a vaccine pipeline, and of course the information uh, on, on what you need to make a good vaccine for each of those viruses, because for coronavirus, it's quite straightforward, with the spike protein being the, the most prominent antigen, and that's where all the vaccines are, are aiming for now. But for other virus groups, it's yeah. more complicated. Before um, you continue on, you, you talk about the spike. Mm -hmm. What do you mean exactly with the spike? The, the spike protein is the, uh, the, the famous uh, uh, projection on the, on the coronavirus particle. So if you look at all these particles on internet now, they have wonderful colors. None of them is true, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they all have this, this trimeric spike. So this is three copies of the spike protein together form a spike. And there are about 100 spikes on each virus particle. And the spike is used by the virus to enter the cell. So it binds to a surface molecule of the cell. And then the virus particle is taken up. But it's also the uh, primary target for the immune response, the antibody response at least. Uh, which means that if you have antibodies that bind to spikes, that would basically prevent the virus from binding to the cell and therefore uh, block infection. So The, the interesting thing is that um, um, you had a recent paper in Science to visualize this uh, process. Uh, uh, the, the, yeah, in fact, a replication. Uh, yeah. uh, but the interesting is, whereas uh, most of the scientists use the molecular information, you combine the molecular information with the topological information. Yeah. Could imaging, you tell us a yeah. little bit more about that? Well, of course, imaging and, and particularly electron microscopy has, has for almost a century now gone hand in hand with virology because we have the problem that we cannot see our viruses, um, at least not with the naked eye, but also not with the light microscope. You really need an electron microscope and much higher magnifications to be able to see this. And that also means that anything the virus changes in the cell can be studied in combination with an infect infection process. And um, yeah, the, the, the paper you're referring to is not about the virus particle, um, because you, you can basically say the virus particle, which only exists outside the cell, is, is a, a dead entity, basically. It doesn't do a lot. It just moves from cell to cell and delivers the genome. And only then the virus comes alive and takes over the control of the cell. And uh, the structures we have been studying you might say are the, the, the mini control centers of the virus. So it establishes specific uh, replication organelles, as we call them, uh, vesicles in the cell in which the RNA synthesis, the genome replication of the virus will take place. And we had a longstanding uh, riddle because we knew these vesicles existed and RNA synthesis was happening inside, but they appear to be completely closed, which left the question how the RNA could get out and okay. uh, using very uh, innovative electron microscopy techniques and 
Of course, the credits for that goes to my collaborators in the EM group of LUMC, your former department, Hans. <laughs> we were able to solve this riddle by using uh, cryo-electromicroscopy, which means freezing down infected cells just like that, very, very quickly to provoke, uh, prevent the formation of ice crystals. But there's no fixed stiff used, there's no stain used. If you then put that in a uh, special microscope at in, in, in its frozen state, you get a much better a uh, much more natural image of the infected cell. And doing that, we could discover tiny uh, pores, we call them, tiny transport channels in the membranes of these replication organelles, which will hopefully, because we don't have the evidence for that uh, yet, but the hypothesis now is that these are used to export the RNA from the inside of these vesicles to the rest of the cell, where they need to be going for uh, packaging into new virus particles. It's a nice example that investments in a 4 million uh, euro microscope at the Netherlands Center for Electron Nanoscopy, because that's what you have done, it, it really pays off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, this, this then brings the next question, is this, this, this poor, this channel also a potential drug target? Can you des design something that will block the pore and therefore exactly. stop viral replication in its tracks? So to, to summarize, we've always seen these cells as almost impenetrable by, by the naked eye or by the technologies that we've had. And now by using this new or combining these two techniques of mm -hmm. freezing them down and using <laughs> this electro microscope, mm -hmm. uh, you're able to find really small, like tiny uh, exits yeah, that yeah. the virus can use. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're talking about things that are nanometers uh, in size. So. Um, the virus is 100 nanometers. The structure I was just referring to is even 10 times smaller than the virus particle. And of course, you need very good resolution and also uh, no artifacts, as we call it. So anything you do to these kind of cells, like fixing them with chemis chemicals or um, drying them out, or uh, all of that can change the structure of the cell. And that becomes very difficult to uh, understand how it was before fixation and what is real and what is an artifact of uh, the processing that you have done to the sample. And is this freezing down, is that a new technology or is it? No, not really. I, I think the idea to freeze things down very quickly is uh, um, yeah, probably decades old. Uh, the way the, the, the machines to do it have improved, of course, but here the trick in particular is in a uh, uh, a technique called FIP milling. This is foc focused ion beam, beam milling. Um, difficult term probably, um, but it comes down to the fact that the, the complete cell when frozen down is too thick to see through with the electron microscope. And to make that possible, you are sort of digesting away, beaming away with this, this ion beam, everything you don't want to see, leaving just a very thin piece of the cell, which is thin enough to look through, and then you can do your imaging. And that is a a very laborious uh, technique because uh, I understood the, the PSC student doing this can make about 10 of these samples per day in a whole working day. And of those 10, a few will break because it's extremely fragile. And a few will not contain what you're looking for. So in the end, you need to do a, a whole lot of work to uh, get the number of samples that he has uh, prepared for wow. this to get the science paper. That is yeah. phenomenal. So there's a, so there's a PhD student now slicing these cells, yeah, making yeah. them even thinner. Yeah, the Dutch word for it is frezen, but I'm, I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with, with that. Uh, but the, the, yeah, the, the milling, as it's called, is indeed uh, burning away everything you don't want. I, I would have a nice movie to illustrate it. It's easier than, uh, than without an image, I guess. But uh, yes, this is uh, Georg Wolf. He's uh, 
a very talented uh, German PhD student who's working in the group of uh, Monse Barsena, who is the EM uh, PI with uh, whom we're collaborating on this. The entire field of uh, high-resolution electron microscopy has been incredibly boosted by the Nobel Prize in several Absolutely. years ago. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. In your introduction, you we've talked about that you've been working with coronaviruses for over 30 years. True. Though this is a problem that we've only found out about, or the most of most of the public has found out about a year ago. Yeah, yeah. They 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 all say it's the coronavirus, and of course, we just say it's a coronavirus because there are hundreds of them. Um, and uh, when I entered the field, we we were interested in them because of their fascinating molecular biology. They have a number of features with which I will not bore you here today, but which made them special, including a, a usually large genome. So they have many more proteins than the average uh, RNA virus. And then, of course, in 2003, when the news came that uh, th this outbreak about which we had heard from uh, from China was indeed caused by a coronavirus, was a, a huge surprise. Uh, as I said, it could have been representative of many other groups, um, many, other, many other virus families. But it was a coronavirus and, and that for the first time established that these viruses um, can jump to humans from animal sources, can cause potentially lethal infections. Uh, the, the mortality for SARS-1 was in the order of 10%, so that's substantially higher even than for SARS-2. And yeah, we, we suspected this could happen because we know, we know there are four uh, as we call it, common cold coronaviruses. So viruses that we know every winter uh, come around, they cause a common cold, they don't kill anyone. But the idea already uh, was emerging around those uh, years, the early, early years of this century, that they must have come from animal sources because we can find quite closely related viruses uh, in animals. And uh, yeah, for SARS-1, uh, only two years after the outbreak actually, it was discovered that bats were the likely uh, reservoir from which they must have jumped to humans, probably through an intermediate host, uh, animals that are closer to humans than, than bats. The same pattern happened for the uh, MERS coronavirus, which we had in, in between the two sources. So 2012, this was uh, discovered in a uh, Saudi Arabian patient. And it was reconstructed in the end to have uh, jumped from uh, dromedary camels, um, but again, uh, we think that before that, bats were the original source of this lineage of viruses as well. And that was actually a lucky break that that virus was not so strong. It has a very low uh, R0, as we call it, this, this infectivity ratio that we are all looking at now. Uh, it's way below, uh, way below one, so it's not able to sustain itself. It doesn't cause a long-lasting outbreak, but it jumps from camels to humans repeatedly causing smaller outbreaks in a family, in a hospital setting, and then it dies out again, but then it happens again. So, um, of course, then yeah, either eradicating or vaccinating the reservoir species would be the solution, which is actually being explored for the MERS virus. So they're looking at the dromedary camel vaccine for this, because it, that is more cost-effective, basically, than immunizing the whole human population. And, and, as, and as, as I understood uh, correctly, uh, uh, I think it is that the camels in Arabia caused the problem, but the camels in Northern Africa, and there are many. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, w it wasn't the case. No, no, so the, the, the virus is, is very wide. Actually, they, they traced it back, I think, to the early 90s even, and on the basis of antisera from camels that were stored, they could find cross-reactivity or reactivity to this virus 30 years back. So quite likely, uh, this virus has been around longer, but okay. it was just never 
uh, diagnosed and mm -hmm. identified as a coronavirus. And yeah, of course, if there are single cases and small clusters, they often do not get a lot of attention. Um, only when things get out of control, as they did with, uh, with SARS-2, it's a different story. This zoonosis, as it is called, huh? mm -hmm. the, uh, you, you call the jumping the virus from animals to man. Of course, it's, it's an increasing uh, problem. And if we then read again in the newspaper last week that uh, uh, a population of mink animals, and there are many, many in Denmark, yeah. uh, suddenly had a virus that mutated. And then, of course, there was big alarms because what happened if this mutated virus uh, jumps uh, to man and uh, the vaccines that we are developing now uh, are not effective for this? Um, how, how serious is this risk? Well, it's, of course, a, a fascinating case of, of reverse zoonosis, basically. So, um, virus jumping back from humans to other kinds of animals. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that this uh, brings about mutations. So, RNA viruses are known for their high mutation frequency. This is part of their lifestyle and basically allows them to easily adapt to new circumstances. And if you move from one species to the next, so either from a bat to a human or a human to a, to a mink, um, in, in all cases, the cells that you're using are slightly different. And the virus can easily adapt to that, optimize its replication by making the right or selecting the right point mutations. Um, and yeah, that's what RNA viruses do all the time. So it's not surprising that the virus changes. It, would, it will change in humans. It's already changing in humans as well. Um, and it's difficult to predict if any of those mutations would be critical in terms of making the virus more lethal, more transmissible, uh, as, uh, allowing it to escape from the vaccine, from, from antibodies. Um, yeah, there are 1,200 amino acids in the spike protein. So if one or two are changed, I don't think that is, it's fair to assume that it's going to be a killer mutation. Um, you have to be cautious, you have to check. Uh, but uh, vaccines respond to multiple sites on the spike protein, and it's unlikely that all of them will change at the same time uh, and, and, and therefore allow the virus to escape. And actually, the, the real reason, the, the real driving force for the virus to do so would be if most people are immune, because then it really pays yeah. up for the virus to escape from immunity and create a new market for itself. And that, of course, is not the case. We have maybe 10% uh, seropositive people now, and yeah, only when more people get infected or the vaccination has really got started, this percentage will go way up and probably force the virus to make more and more spike mutations. So, in fact, it's an incredible, incredible arms race. Eh? It the is. virus yeah. tries to escape and we, we try to, yeah. to cope with it and yeah. uh, develop effective inhibitors. Yeah, yeah that, that, that arms race is happening at many levels. So, the immune response, the antibody response is one example, but also inside infected cells, um, there, there are many uh, defense system in the cell. It's called innate immunity. So there are all kinds of detectors for virus infection. They will ring an alarm bell when the virus comes in, and that creates a so-called antiviral program in which, which fights the infection and uh, warns the cells around the infected cell that an infection is happening and that they can start up uh, their antiviral programs as well. And all of that is countered again by viruses. Uh, viruses have Nice tricks. Uh, of course, you, you, you can hear that I'm slightly fascinated. I'm partially on the side of the virus. <laughs> but they have nice tricks to, um, to delay or evade these mechanisms. So in coronaviruses in particular, a lot of the extra genome space that they're using 
appear to have been invested in multiple mechanisms to delay and evade all of these innate immune responses. You said a, a minute ago, um, uh, 10% no group immunity, but there was also, again, I refer quite frequently to, to the press and the news, that an institution in the United States was claiming that the percentage of uh, positive people was much higher than what we assume now. Okay, um, I Oh. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that depends on how and where you measure. I guess exactly. Uh, I, I would say certainly in the U.S. Of course, which, which is one of the leading countries, unfortunately now with the number of infections, it may be higher. Uh, of course, also the um, development of the, the the immune response takes a few weeks. We know that, so uh, it, it will be lagging behind in terms of uh, detection compared to when infections really happen. And yeah, I, I expect it will be steadily increasing uh, over this winter. But on the other hand, it's assessed that you need 60 to 70% immunity in the population to really start yeah. uh, reducing the, the easy spread of the virus. Well, far from and, and to get the, to get there, that means many more people need to get infected or the vaccines that are on the horizon uh, will hopefully uh, speed this up. Um, thank you for answering all these questions, but I'm, I'm kind of stuck with uh, one more big one for me, and that is, what if we have another pandemic? What if a new strain of coronaviruses break, breaks out in five to 10 years? Um, what can be done to change the course of such a pandemic? Can, can we learn from the mistakes we've made in the past with SARS-1? Sure, sure. Um, or, or SARS-2, I guess, because also this year, of course, we have been learning about this virus as we, uh, we went along. And there were quite a few surprises, including the fact that it can fly under the radar, it can spread without causing any or at least not a lot of disease, which is, from the virus perspective, of course, a great way to, to make a living. Uh, yeah, I, th I think um, the, the only answer is to invest in so-called pandemic preparedness, and, and that has many levels, uh, of course, starting with good diagnostic systems to find viruses as soon as they emerge, to classify them and understand how dangerous they may be, where they're coming from, uh, and then to fight infections. Uh, the, the, the two themes already mentioned, of course, come up. You need antiviral drugs uh, already on the shelf, which can be used locally in an area like Wuhan, where the virus emerged. You could have treated people with it uh, prophylactically. You could have, could have treated patients to reduce the the, the initial spread of the virus and slow things down or maybe even completely block it before it became a major problem. And then, uh, yeah, of course, vaccination is always the preferred uh, way out in the sense that immunity in every human being is the best way to make sure that the virus cannot circulate. And for that, you can, um, first of all, of course, have the vaccine production pipelines ready to go, which uh, can, like a plug and play system, be used to put in the newly emerging virus, but it has a disadvantage you can only start when you know what that virus is. So the spike protein of SARS-1 virus would not have been good enough to get a SARS-2 vaccine. It's mm -hmm. too uh, diverse, basically, too distantly related. And there, the drugs have the advantage of targeting very uh, conserved functions of the virus. So we're quite convinced that an antiviral drug that blocks the polymerase of sars coronavirus one will also block SARS coronavirus 2 and probably a whole bunch of other coronaviruses which are still circulating in bats and perhaps waiting for their chance to make the same jump. So indeed SARS 3 and 4, yeah, we have to be prepared. After SARS 1, I think we made the mistake of thinking, well, this is once in how many thousand years? Well, 
is now twice or even three times if you count MERS in 17 years. So I would say that makes a case for uh, being prepared for coronaviruses. But again, several other virus groups deserve the same kind of attention. So that's the silver lining. It's not, <laughs> is it the vaccine or the replication in It's definitely it's, it's, both. You need, you need both. And I think the, the silver lining is that we learned so much about molecular virology uh, over the past uh, three, four decades uh, that we're indeed able to, de de to design these kind of strategies, uh, not, not by random approaches, but really by based on knowledge that we have about how the virus works and replicates. But uh, yeah, of course you need the, the investment uh, and that's not a two or three year investment, that's a, that's a 10 to 15 year program to cover all these virus groups and, and get to the, uh, the good starting points to react uh, appropriately right away when something happens. Let's hope that you and your collaborators are very successful in this and uh, Joop and I would like to thank you for uh, discussing this with you and wish you uh, lots of success in the near future. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Okay. And um, if any of our listeners would like to contribute to your crowdfunding uh, uh, website, where would where would they find it? It's still up. It's uh, if if you type "wake up to Corona," and uh, this is the the slogan that was used. One word. Uh, you, I'm sure you will find it on the website of the Leiden University Fund. And I think it's still open indeed. Um, and of course, our our new lab is up and running, but. Of course, we need manpower in this lab as well, and uh, we definitely have good use for any uh, additional support. Always welcome.